You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Well, I'm standing outside in a parking lot and the place is relatively empty. Although I do still see some people right over there in the corner and that guy's getting into his car. But you know, there are a few places that you can go and be truly alone, even if you... Go into your living room and shut the door. No other humans or even other easily seen species here, like canines or felines. But I'm still not alone. I just don't see the company I'm keeping. There are millions of microbes all over me and inside me. But of course, we're not really surprised by life's adaptive abilities anymore. There was a time when we were, however. There was a time when the desert, the desert, was almost the definition of a lifeless place. Hot, annual rainfall of only a few centimeters. I mean, what organisms could survive there? But even in the most arid, scorching deserts, we find microbial life. Heat, cold, dark, acids, whatever extreme conditions you choose, some life forms have adapted and thrived. And of course, that has implications for finding life on other worlds. It also makes Earth a biological boon, fertile and diverse. But surprisingly, much of our planet remains unexplored. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science, where we will say la vie. I'm Molly Bentley, and so here's an exploration story. On the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, where there's been a first in the search for life in the harshest of environments. Lake Willens is buried under a half mile of ice, and it was spotted by satellite photos. You might never notice it from the ground. Its discovery spawned an ambitious project, WIZARD, for Willens Ice Stream Subglacial Access Research Drilling. Funded by the National Science Foundation, it's been an attempt, now a successful one, to drill down into this hidden polar lake. Of course, there's the massive technical feat of drilling through the ice and then working carefully to thread instruments like a camera down the borehole and finally bringing up samples of the lake water, all in the unforgiving environment of Antarctica. And in those samples of lake water, the team has found evidence of life, cells that seem to be metabolizing. Well, it's not so surprising to find life in a remote part of the Earth anymore. But if confirmed, this first evidence of life in a buried Antarctic lake may have implications in the search for life beyond Earth. We're about to talk with two researchers, one in San Diego, Helen Fricker, who discovered Lake Willens in 2007, and, still in Antarctica, her colleague microbiologist Jill McCookey, who has so recently returned from the drill site that she's hardly had time to thaw. In fact, Dr. Fricker hasn't really had a chance to talk with her, 
but she will in a moment from McMurdo Station, the coastal U.S. research base in Antarctica and the staging area for investigators passing through on their way to field sites. Helen, your wizard team, and that's wizard with two S's, has successfully drilled into this remote icy lake Willens, and we'll talk about how you did this and what you found there. But first, you were the one that discovered Lake Willens. Isn't that right? I did. So in 2006, I was analyzing data from a satellite, and we were looking at elevation changes over the, over the ice sheet. And we found areas where the surface was rising and falling very rapidly with a very large signal. And we inferred that there's actually a very large subglacial water system underneath the ice sheet that goes all the way down into the ice streams that's transferring water at the base of the ice sheet. Okay, so you, you discovered Lake Willens, but Helen Fricker, why didn't you name it Lake Fricker? Because we actually discovered a whole network of lakes underneath the Willens Mercer ice streams. We just named the lakes after the ice streams they were located under, and then there were some other lakes we discovered that were named after features they were found next to. Okay, so this sounds like a combination of modesty and some practicality. Right. Now, <laughs> this lake, Lake Willens, is about a half mile under the ice sheet, is that right? Uh, yes, about 800 meters under the ice. Okay, 800 meters, and it's one of a community of subglacial lakes. Now, what is feeding these lakes? You talked about the Lake Willens ice stream, and are they connected to the ocean? So there's several lakes underneath all of Antarctica, but this particular system underneath the Willens and Mercer ice stream, part of it is interconnected. Some of the lakes seem to be that water flows from one of the lakes into another one downstream. And then as you keep going downstream, eventually that does meet the ocean. And yet the top is capped off by all this ice. How long has Lake Willens effectively been isolated from the outside world? We actually don't know the answer to that. And that's one of the goals of WIZARD is to try and see if we can tell from the samples in the water and in the sediments if there's any clue as to how long the lake has been there for. Mm -hmm. On the order of hundreds of thousands of years, millions? It could be. We just don't, it could be hundreds of thousands of years. We, we just don't know. It could only be in the last century. There, there are many things that we don't know. Well, Lake Vostok, another subglacial lake, which has been drilled by the Russians, and now Lake Willens are of interest not just to glaciologists such as yourself, but to biologists. That's Be right. The possibility of life being in both of those, and it sounds as though they may have found life in Lake Willens. Yes, so the, the interesting thing is that we've never obtained clean samples from the base of the ice sheet before, so from a lake. So we haven't sampled that environment in a way that we can really determine what's in there. And when you say clean samples, we mean uncontaminated. Uncontaminated. So there's very strict protocols that we had to follow and we're only collecting samples that are very clean and so the results are going to be unambiguous. Well, we're, um, we're about to hear about those results from your colleague, microbiologist Jill Makuki, who is in Antarctica right now. Um, she's just returned from the field and we'll find out what she discovered. I'm sure you have questions for her, but may I ask you, Helen, why didn't you go down to the Antarctic yourself? So I have three small children, and to go down to Antarctica is a big commitment in terms of time. I would have to have been away from my family for at least two months. And not only that, but um, it's very remote. So if I needed to come back for any reason, then it would have been very difficult. So I made the decision a long time ago that I would just stay in the States. I believe you have not spoken with Jill McCookie about her results yet, have you? I have not. No, I haven't spoken to her at all. Okay. So let's give her a call. She's at McMurdo Station, which is the American research base, as we heard. I'll let Helen say a few words to Jill, and then I'll have some follow-up questions. So Seth is placing this call to Antarctica. 
What's the area code for Antarctica, Seth? It's 720. It's the same as Denver. <laughs> okay, try her now. Okay. So Jill? Yeah. Hi, Jill. I can't hear Helen. You can't hear Helen. That's bad. Oh, no. Okay. How's that going to work? Hang on. We're going we're gonna to work on it. Rather, with difficulty, that's how it's going to work. Talk so, me. Helen, talk for a while to Jill. You may have to repeat some of this, but just anything. Anything. Hi, Jill. How are you? Oh, now I can hear you. Hey, Helen. She can hear me. <laughs> it's great to hear your voice. You too. Well, Jill Mikuki, thank you very much for being with us. You are at McMurdo Station right now in Antarctica. I am. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. <laughs> okay. Well, Jill, we all know that there have been big discoveries made there at Lake Willens, and I'll let Helen, I know she wants to say hello to you, let her say hello and ask you a couple questions. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Congratulations to you, too. It's been so exciting. It's been really exciting to hear it all in, in sort of dribs and drabs from the field. I've been getting emails and things from people's satellite phones, but I haven't really heard properly from anybody sort of how it was or the, the sort of initial feelings of when you first got through the ice into the lake and things like that. So I'd love to hear you tell me about that. Well, first of all, you were absolutely there in spirit and it was just incredibly exciting. I have to admit my heart was pounding when we were lowering the borehole camera down the borehole in anticipation of looking into subglacial Lake Willens for the first time. Wow. Was it in the middle of the night? I mean, I couldn't tell exactly what was going on. It seemed like nobody was really sleeping. You're all sort of working around the clock. Uh, I don't know what time it was. Yeah, we were, we were definitely working around the clock hours. So you um, first got through to the lake and then you put the camera down, is that correct? Yeah, we used a camera um, that Alberto Barher built. He's with JPL. Yeah. And this was just such an essential tool. And it was so exciting. It allowed us to view this borehole in real time. So if you can imagine, we're going through a half a meter of ice before we get into the lake waters. And, and so we're, you know, we're going down meter by meter. Well, it's so exciting for me just to see that image of the base of the lake. I mean, I know it just looked like, you know, muddy sediments on the base of a river, but just to think that's underneath the ice sheet, that was just incredible. And so the camera came up and then you put the first instrument down. What was the first instrument that went down after that? Once the camera came up, it was go time. The next instrument down was a conductivity, temperature, and depth sensor. I, you know, I was thinking about it today, and it's like, wow, that, we were going down and up a half a mile of ice. These are, are robust instruments. They were um, specially prepared for deployment in an Antarctic borehole, but it's still a tricky business. It's a little bit like that old game operation. You know, you don't want to bang it against the, the walls of the borehole too much, so you do have to be mindful at some level as you're deploying these instruments. The next instrument we sent down, these were um, water samplers. Those had to go really, really slow. They're, they're relatively delicate. Helen and Jill, this is Molly. It's been great to listen to the two of you <laughs> catch up on, on the news. And Jill, can I ask you about that sample you were just saying? You had to be very careful bringing this water sample up. Is that how you sampled the water that you would then go on to test for life? Absolutely. When we went down with our sampler, we could tell when it came up, we would do a quick analysis in the lab, we would look at conductivity, and that would tell us something about the salinity, and we knew then that we had the subglacial lake water. One of the graduate students, she prepared a sample by staining it with a dye that's specific for nucleic acids, and then together we looked at it um, under a microscope, and we were able to visualize DNA-containing cells. It was very exciting. So in the field, you were able to determine that there were cells in the sample of water that came up from Lake Willens. 
How confident are you that that sample is not contaminated? Um, We're pretty confident. I mean, we took a lot of measures to access this borehole cleanly. We still have a lot of additional analyses to do, but we had a lot of extensive clean access measures. Well, as a, as a microbiologist, could you say a little bit about what this discovery means, finding life in an Antarctic lake? Why is that an important discovery? So for a microbiologist, I'd say it's not a huge surprise because we expect microbes to be everywhere. And now we want to know what they're doing. What role do they play in the Earth system? For the general public, why might they be excited? because this is a new frontier. This is a place that we we haven't been able to go before, that we haven't been able to explore at this level. And the fact that there's life there, I I hope that connects the public to the Earth system a little bit more. Um, Antarctica just isn't a big, frozen, dead place, like some people call it. It's, it's It's a living continent as well. Now, is it possible that these are ocean critters? Uh, Helen had explained to us earlier that uh, the ocean does feed some of these lakes, these subglacial lakes. No, Is that not right, Helen? I said that the lakes fed into the ocean. That sounds like that's a crucial difference. Yeah, because it's going downhill. The ocean is downhill of the lakes. Ah, so my question of whether or not these could be ocean creatures is now a moot one. It sounds uh, like no? No, I don't think it's moot. It's possible that it could you could have intrusion of seawater up the system, but we don't know. Any idea what the energy or the food source might be for these microorganisms once they are confirmed? I know you're being careful about that. Could it be chemical energy? Uh, when I think of the energy source for these organisms, I think it's coming from the rocks. This is a, a relatively shallow lake, but also a very broad, flat lake. It covers about 23 square miles, and that's about the size of the borough of Manhattan. So it covers a lot of surface area, and there's a high potential for rock water interaction. And these rocks are where the microbes get their energy. So for them, that's a very good thing. Wait, how do you get energy from rocks? You can cleave iron and sulfur from, from rock material. So that's their food is, source, their food source, really. That's a food source for these organisms, whether they couple that with respiration of oxygen, whether they breathe oxygen or sulfate. These are energy sources they can get from the bedrock material. Terrific. Joe McCookie, thank you so much for joining us from McMurdo Station in Antarctica. Thank you so much for having me here, Molly. And Helen, it was great to talk to you. I look forward to catching up more. It was great to talk to you as well, Jill. Congratulations to everyone for a very successful field season. I'm sorry I couldn't be there. See you all again soon. And thanks, Molly. Goodbye, Helen. Goodbye, Jill. Bye. Okay. Helen Fricker is a glaciologist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, and principal investigator of the Wizard Project. She discovered Lake Willans. Jill McCookie, also a wizard principal investigator, is a microbiologist at the University of Tennessee who just returned from exploring the lake. And we reach Jill at McMurdo Station in Antarctica. This discovery of life under the ice may have implications for the existence of life elsewhere in the cosmos. Because in Lake Willans, it's dark and it's cold. Photosynthesis is not an option. So the big question is, how do these microbes make a living? Well, I'm here at the NASA Ames Research Center, acres and acres of low-slung buildings filled with active scientists, their lab equipment, and who knows what else. I come over here mostly for the cafeteria. I'm going to go see Chris McKay, a planetary scientist, who I would like to ask about this discovery of life in an Antarctic lake. Hey, Chris. Hi, Seth. What are you working on? I'm sorry to bug you here. but Right now, I'm working on Mars. 
Mars. Because, <laughs> Doesn't look like Mars. <laughs> well, I'm thinking I'm on Mars. In virtual reality, I'm on Mars. <laughs> well, okay. So in thinking about other possible places for life in the solar system, how significant for you is this discovery of microbes in Lake Willans? They did find microbes beneath the ice uh, in this lake in Antarctica. That's not too surprising. What would be news is if these microbes were forming a community and living down there and thriving in that dark, cold region. Then the question would be, what are they using for their energy source? If it turns out it's just the detritus falling in with the ice, that's not very interesting. However, there's a possibility, it's been talked about, that as this ice melts and interacts with the rocks below the polar plateau, it releases some kind of chemical energy, maybe hydrogen, who knows what. If that's powering an ecosystem living there, then that's very exciting, very interesting. Okay, well, we don't know that yet. And, and they could just be then micro scavengers, in other words, just living on you know junk that drifts down to them. It's interesting, somewhat unfortunate, that most of the subsurface biosphere does just that. Why make food yourself when you can eat the garbage coming down from the surface? And the surface of Earth is so productive. Now, this is what limits the relevance of the subsurface biosphere to other worlds. Go to Mars, there may be a subsurface biosphere, but it's not eating anything that's growing on the surface because there's nothing on the surface. Same with Europa, same for Enceladus. So to find a good analog for these other worlds, we need a subsurface biosphere that is not consuming the food produced at the surface or even the oxygen produced at the surface. All right. Well, thanks, Grace. You bet. So stay tuned for developments in this icy story. Coming up, the origins of life and director James Cameron's career takes a dive. On every one of these dives, I feel like I've gone to an alien world on this expedition we just finished. You know, I was seeing things nobody had ever seen before. I felt privileged to be there, you know, but there was also this sense of the vastness of what we don't know. The director cast himself in his deepest role yet. C'est la vie on Big Picture Science. Well, the possible discovery of living, metabolizing microbes in Lake Willans and just about everywhere else on the planet certainly demonstrates that once you get life started, it really can take over your world. But what about that first part, getting life started? Harvard chemistry professor Jack Shostak, no relation, ponders how it all began. And he's won a Nobel Prize for work in another field altogether, medicine. He accepted the 2009 award for work on what role telomeres, which cap our chromosomes, play in aging. Now he wants to investigate the origins of life by doing it himself in the lab. He's attempting to create artificial cells. Jack, researchers in Antarctica found what they believe is microbial life in a lake. Are you surprised that we find life in such a remote spot? No, not at all. Every remote, you know, surprising, hostile part of the Earth is colonized by life. Okay. Well, life seems to, yeah, to be very opportunistic, like, like my next-door neighbors. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, you're studying the origin of life. And, of course, the big deal there is how we went from chemistry, you know, in the earlier, to biology. What, what sort of chemical ingredients do you need to get life started, in, in your opinion? 
So people have been trying to figure this out for the last 50 years. Obviously, the building blocks, just looking at what we have in biology, you know, we need uh, nucleotides to make things like RNA and DNA. We need amino acids to make peptides and proteins. We need fatty acids to make membranes. So those are the kinds of molecules we, we need. Well, then, what are the really essential compounds that you need to create life in all of this? I think one of the most critical molecules we need are the building blocks of RNA so that you can have inheritance and, and molecules that do useful things. And to make RNA, you need nucleotides. But this is something that's just being figured out now as we speak. Well, you say you need nucleotides, but, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what's in a nucleotide. Are we, are we talking, you know, amino acids? Are we talking carbon? Are we talking, you know, uranium? What are we, what are we talking about that you really need? <laughs> okay, so you can break nucleotides down into simpler materials. Uh, so part of it is a sugar. That's the ribose that gives RNA its name, ribonucleic acid. So you need this particular sugar. You need the bases, the A, G, C, and U of RNA. Uh, and you need phosphate. And all of these things have been a little bit mysterious, and especially how to bring them together and connect them in the right way has been a real puzzle for decades. Now, when I talk to people who are studying the origins of life, in other words, they're, they're just trying to not understand how it happened, but trying to figure out when it happened. They say, well, sometime between maybe three and a half and four billion years ago, which is really early days for the Earth, you know, there was already life. Do you, do you concur? My bias is that the time that life started is quite early. Uh, you know, I think maybe within uh, one or two or 300 million years of the time the Earth cooled down enough to have liquid water. In other words, you're saying it could have even been earlier than what I suggested. It could be, you know, 4.2, 4.4 billion years ago that the first life got started. That's so quick that it kind of suggests that it wasn't a very hard thing to do. Well, if that's right, you know, if all the chemical steps are easy, maybe it would be easy for life to get started. Um, but there's still a lot of gaps in our knowledge, right? So we don't really know. Jack, do you think it might have happened more than once? I mean, today, all life on Earth seems to be related. It all uses DNA and there's RNA and all that sort of stuff. But could it have been the case that, you know, maybe 4.5 billion years ago, biology got started with some other molecule, XNA, just give it a name. Uh, but that life all got wiped out by an early asteroid, and it's gone. I mean, could it be that we're just the latest in a series of developments of life? It's certainly possible that life started many, many times, and only the progeny of one of those events survive. Whether it started in different ways, really chemically different, distinct ways, is something, again, that we're trying to figure out. The XNA that you referred to, uh, there's actually recent experiments that show that there are molecules related to RNA that can act as genetic materials. So it's an open question as to whether any of those alternatives might have been involved in early life forms. The first life forms, uh, you know, today life is made up of cells, unless it's the blob in the movies, which didn't seem to be a cell to me, but maybe it was, I don't know. But do you have to have a cell to have life? I mean, is that essential? And if so, what is it about a cell? Why is that the form of life on this planet? What I think you need is some kind of spatial localization, right? You can't just have molecules floating around in, in solution and, and getting separated from each other. Nothing can evolve very far in that kind of situation. 
But once you have all the goodies held together inside a cell membrane or inside the pore of a rock, for example, then things can really, really take off. A lot of good stuff can be held together, close together. That's really important. Your team is trying to make a cell in the lab. Uh, you know, something probably fairly simple or at least comparable to the kind of thing that might have existed in the early Earth's oceans. What, what do you start with, Jack? So that is exactly what we're trying to do. And we are starting off at a somewhat higher level than we were talking about before. We're assuming the building blocks are there. And the question we're asking is once you've got those building blocks, those amino acids, nucleotides, and membranes, materials, then what? How do those molecules get together and start acting like a cell? Can you give me a specific example of what you've learned about how cells come together? Sure. So I, I think one of the areas that we've made the most progress on is understanding how very primitive cells could grow and divide before the evolution of all the complicated modern machinery. So if you just think about a cell membrane, what we've worked out over the last decade or so is actually two or three separate different ways in which we can drive growth in a very surprising way. So that what starts off as a, a spherical membrane vesicle grows into a long filament. And once you have that, the process of division becomes very easy. Gentle shaking will cause division into daughter cells. And on top of that, we have other ways of driving division. So we have now a way that we can essentially drive a primitive cell cycle just using very simple fluctuations in the environment. Why does it matter, Jay? How do you answer that? When people say, look, you know, life's here. It's, it's, it's a fact. Do, do I need to know how you might be able to make it? Well, I think this is uh, something that's parallel to any fundamental scientific investigation. Why do we want to know how the universe started? Why do we want to know how gravity works? Right? It's fundamental human curiosity. I think, although, to me, the biggest, most interesting questions are, are the origins questions. The origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin of consciousness. I, I can't actually imagine anybody who wouldn't be curious about those questions. Jack Shostak, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Jack Shostak is a chemist at Harvard University and at Massachusetts General Hospital. He won the 2009 Nobel Prize in Medicine, and he's no relation to our co-host. Yeah, how lamentable. <laughs> if you've seen the science fiction horror film Aliens, it probably took you a couple of sleepless nights before you erased from your mind the idea of encountering those slimy and pitiless denizens of deep space. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. Aliens abound in the movie Avatar as well, but those anthropomorphic blue creatures were kind of childlike exotic and fascinating nonetheless. And yet you could argue that James Cameron, who directed both of those pictures, was most personally attached to the aliens that float their way through another film, Aliens of the Deep. That's a documentary of his 2003 dive to the ocean floor. James Cameron alternates between sitting in the Hollywood director's chair and in the seat at the helm of a submersible vehicle. Diving has been his passion for really his whole life. And in 2003, he went down to greet the hydrothermal vents at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, an alien ecosystem harsher than anything you'd find on terrestrial Earth. 
although the giant tube worms love it and thrive. He's now gone farther by taking a plunge in 2012 to the Challenger Deep, which is a cleft in the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. The Challenger Deep is located in the Western Pacific. It was explored by Don Walsh and Jacques Picard in 1960 using the Bathyscape Trieste. But James Cameron made the first solo dive to this deep, dark, and isolated spot. Of course, his support team included many scientists, and his financial status and his star status made the trip possible, opening up this alien world to everyone. Making Hollywood movies is a chancy business, but this was surely the famous director's riskiest project yet. Diving alone through six miles of crushing ocean water in a submarine, the Deep Sea Challenger, put together by his team in a mere two months. I wonder if you could describe, we'll start with a sensory description of what it's like to go down and be, as you've put it, on the edge of photosynthesis in the ocean. Mm, Well, you go past the edge of photosynthesis pretty quickly in the Deep Sea Challenger, um, and the sub descends so fast, I'm literally in total blackness in probably about a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. So, and then there's a long way to go after that. There's still still another, you know, couple of hours of descent on some of these deep dives. Is there anything to see as you go down and do you have time to see anything? Because you know astronauts, they say when they go up in the rockets, they hardly have time to look out the window because they're focused so much on what they need to do with the mechanics of the vehicle. Is it the same when you go the opposite direction? I think if I was going into orbit and I got a chance to look back at, at the, the uh, panorama of the Earth, I'd be looking at that. But when you're falling through this kind of black limbo, when you've gone out of the, uh, out of the zone of sunlight, uh, which is you know, usually more than nine-tenths of the dive, there's nothing to see. If I went neutrally buoyant and just hovered in the water, there'd be all kinds of, of small gelatinous animals, you know, medusoids and salps and bioluminescent plankton and things like that. But I'm, I'm kind of screaming down at high speed because I want to optimize my bottom time. This sub is designed to get to the bottom as quickly as possible so that I can do my sampling and my exploration down there on the bottom and then come screaming back up. So it's really about getting up and down quickly and moving slowly over the bottom, looking for very small animals. The animals at great depth are not large. You know, there's this idea that when you dive deeper, the critters get bigger, you know, the giant squid, the kraken. If you're going to find that, you know, Carcharodon, Megalodon, it's going to be down there at the bottom. But that's really not the case, not below, you know, a, a thousand meters or so. Animals tend to get smaller because there's less there's less food. You know, the food's kind of falling from above, from the deep scattering layer and, and from the surface. Now, when you're, well, let me use a description that you gave. In, in Aliens of the Deep, there's a, a moment where you're watching um, this creature. I don't know mm. if it was a squid. And you said, I could sit around and watch this guy all day. That was a Dumbo octopus, and, and uh, he was just the most gorgeous thing. And, he, you know, he's just doing his thing down there. He doesn't need us in his world. And, uh, you know, who knows if he evolved recently or, or, you know, several hundred million years ago. But he was so uh, so beautiful and, and graceful in his, uh, his or her movement and uh, kind of semi-translucent, almost looked like he was glowing from within. You know, literally, there's an incredible sense of peace that uh, comes over you when you see these, these 
these animals that are really primeval creatures. Some of them have been around since the Cambrian, I'm sure. Some of these Holothurians, half a meter long, essentially a sea cucumber, but with these beautiful diaphanous fans and this undulating swimming motion. Um, I could have watched them all day, and that was on this expedition. And, and you really mean that, that there's something about being down there and watching the creatures down there that is it, it's transfixing for you, and you could sit and just, and just watch. Absolutely. You know, I feel like every on every one of these dives, I feel like I've gone to an alien world. Very often on, on this uh, expedition we just finished, you know, I was seeing things nobody had ever seen before. I felt privileged to be there to kind of bear witness, you know, but there was also this sense of the vastness of what we don't know, you know, and, and we shine a little light into the darkness. And every time we move that light around, we see something new. And that just makes me realize that there's this whole alien world right here on Earth that we haven't explored. And I'm talking about the Hadal Trenches now, the, the really deep ocean. This is deeper than the abyss, uh, because the abyssal depths are defined as depths down to 6,000 meters. From 6,000 to 11,000 meters, you have these deep trenches, and there are 12 of them around the world. And that includes the Japan Trench, where the tsunami was generated by you know this big earthquake, and all these other trenches, including the Mariana Trench, Puerto Rico Trench, and so on, all over the world. If you add them all up, the uh, the area is uh, almost the size of the continental United States, you know, almost as big as Australia. So imagine a continent that we haven't explored yet. Well, I guess it's off-quoted that we know more about Mars than we do our own oceans. Would you agree with that? Well, I think we've mapped the surface of Mars in more detail than we've mapped the bottom of the ocean. Two-thirds of our planet is shielded from orbital view. We can only see down through the water column a few meters. You know, like you can sort of see coral reefs and stuff from, from space, but not, not very much information. Get much deeper than that, we can't map it from space. We can map it acoustically, from the surface using you know, multi-beam sonars and things like that, but that only gives you the roughest idea of what's down there. Uh, for example, these hydrothermal vent communities that were discovered in the 70s, you know, the black smokers, they were not seen on the, on the acoustic bathymetry. It was a sub that went down there with people in it that discovered these things. And all of a sudden, there's a whole other community. It totally upended deep-sea science, you know, with this idea of chemosynthesis. Well, and it brought in all the other sciences because suddenly we had to ask big questions about how life might have started on this planet and whether or not there might be life on other planets once we saw those those smokers. Exactly, and, and for, for a long time we thought that the smokers might be an example of an energy source for life that, that might have been the actual cradle of life on Earth, and that's still a possibility. It can't be ruled out, but you know, this new idea that it's this uh, uh, chemical energy created by the, the serpentinization process in these deep subduction zones down in these deep trenches, that might be a better model. That process creates things that bacteria like to live on, like methane and like hydrogen. So you've got these animals down there. They don't need oxygen and they don't need sunlight, but they can live down there in these ultra, ultra deep places. A lot of times when people dive, it would be very, I mean, it would be very natural to dive with an oceanographer or with a geologist, but you've taken expeditions down with astrobiologists, yes. and astrobiologists are known for studying the possibility of life on other planets. Why take them down to the bottom of our own? Well, because it's an opportunity to study life in the most extreme conditions, high pressure, high temperature, different salinities, different chemical compositions. So when we go out into the solar system, you know, you've got Europa, Callisto, Enceladus, you've got these icy moons that are either known or strongly suspected to have their own oceans. So we know that on Earth, where there's water, there's life. 
you know, by understanding the processes that may have led to the emergence of life, we can better predict how life might emerge in an environment like that on Europa, let's say, where there is no sunlight. There can never be sunlight on Europa because there's a layer of ice that might be, I don't know, 10 miles thick. So if you can, if you can come up with a mechanism by which life might have emerged on, on our planet, not requiring sunlight, requiring only geological processes that might very well be, be happening on Europa right now, there could be life there. It was my understanding that in December of 2011, you didn't have a sub, and by March of 2012, you were diving. Yes. How did you go from nothing to diving in two months, a little over two months? Mm. Well, we had all the subcomponents. I mean, we had the we had the thrusters. We had all these things. We had built up all the component systems. We were waiting for the for the uh, laminated syntactic beam, which was the core of the sub, to arrive at the shop. The day that core structure arrived, then everything flew onto it, kind of like a big model kit. We had been waiting for that moment. So it's, it's accurate to say that there was a moment two months before I made my first dive where the entire shop floor was completely empty. There was no sub. And it was a little bit scary because we had the ship coming. Uh, we'd already committed to the window that we were going to do this whole thing. We'd, we'd put down, you know, a million dollars on, on the ship as a down payment. So we had to get the sub done. So everybody was under the gun. And if you could have done a time lapse, we should have done it. We were too busy to even think about filming. If we had done a, a time lapse of it, you would have just seen this sub appear. It would just would have assembled over a over a period of a few weeks. Uh, so it took about a month to put it all together, and then it took about a month to fine-tune the electronics integration so everything was talking to everything the way it was supposed to and all the control systems were working. I, I think if you're, if you're afraid, if you're deeply afraid, don't get in a damn sub. It's just the wrong place for you. You know, if you've got claustrophobia and that sort of thing. You know, and the other thing people probably don't know about this is we didn't, I didn't just jump in and make this deep dive. I dove to, you know, I, I did a couple of shallow dives near Sydney. Then we went to the New Britain Trench and I, do, I did a thousand meter dive, then a 4,000 meter dive, then a 7,000, then an 8,000 meter dive, all before we went out and did the uh, 10,900 10, meter dive in, in Challenger. Aren't you forgetting a dive? Didn't you do a dive to the bottom of a lake when you were a, a teenager or younger? <laughs> well, I've spent a lot of time underwater. I <laughs> made a lot of dives if you want to include scuba and breath holding and every other every other thing. You know, I've definitely got thousands of hours underwater. But yeah, when I was a kid, I loved uh, just skin diving with my, you know, my, my silly little fins that were only probably about six inches long. You know, didn't matter. I loved it. Jim Cameron, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay, thanks. It's been great. Thank you. Good questions. James Cameron is a film director and explorer in residence for National Geographic. Well, so it seems that life is everywhere. Or is it? We try to stump Chris McKay next. Plus, fossils on Mars? Yes, in Robert J. Sawyer's latest sci-fi novel. But then, c'est la vie on Big Picture Science. Life is everywhere. That's the conclusion here on Big Picture Science. Scientists have found it in every niche and cranny of the Earth's land and sea, it seems. Or have we? There has to be some place on this planet where life can't survive. Maybe we should go back to Chris McKay and find out. I think we should go back to Chris McKay and find out. All right, Chris, we've reinforced the idea so far in this show that life is abundant. 
and adaptive. It is very plastic on this planet. But come on, there has to be some place that life doesn't thrive. I mean, can, can I run some specialized locales by you and you can tell me whether we found life there or not? Okay, go ahead. Well, how about this? How about my living room carpet? I mean... Full of life. Well, no, wait a minute. It's synthetic. It's all. It's a shag carpet from the 1960s. Still perfectly good. Right, but there's all sorts of life that's just fallen on it from people walking by, small animals and children. It may not be habitable in that that life forms aren't growing or reproducing, but it's not sterile. All right. Uh, what about on my eyelashes? Life, lots of it. Really? All right. What about in a clean room here in the Silicon Valley, you know, some chip manufacturing plant? Well, a clean room or even my office. Think of my office. It's pretty clean, it's sort pretty of. pretty clean, yeah. It's not a habitable environment. There is no organism we know that can live in this office. The reason is there's no liquid water in this office. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't life in my office. If you came in here with a swab and swab the table or the dishes or whatever, you'd find organisms there, but they're not growing. Okay. Uh, what about those spacecraft that we send to Mars? I mean, they're sterilized. Any life on them when they get to the red planet? No, they're not sterilized. After Viking... We stopped sterilizing spacecraft. We know for a fact that Curiosity landed on Mars with about 500,000 microbes, viable microbes. They're not sterilized. They're not growing either. All right, all right. Well, uh, here's one. How about a cup of bleach? Any life in there? A cup of bleach is as dead as a doornail. <laughs> well, it's good to hear one of them. But actually, Chris, there's been very few places you've been able to point to where there isn't any life. Can you name one other place where microbes just don't dare to go? Well, in terms of natural environments, there's only two that puzzle me by their absence of life, and those are the ice environment. Why isn't Greenland green? Huge sheet of H2O, lots of sunshine, lots of nutrients. All you have to do is learn how to melt the water to form liquid. Why isn't Greenland green? The second environment that puzzles me is clouds. Why aren't clouds green? They've got water, there's liquid, uh, there's nutrients, there's sunlight. Algae should love it. They should be green like a pond is green. Why aren't clouds green? It's a real good question, and it makes me wonder if life really needs a surface uh, in order to live. Well, all right. But it does sound like, uh, on the whole, if life can make a living, except for those stupid microbes living in Greenland, uh, it will do so. Chris McKay, thanks very much. You bet. Chris McKay is a planetary scientist here at NASA Ames Research Center, and I think I'm going to go find the cafeteria. Well, thinking about life, its origins, its eloquent adaptive ability, the mind-boggling forms it takes, prompts astrobiologist Chris McKay to ask whether it could be present elsewhere in the universe. It prompts science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer to ask, what if we've already discovered it? Red Planet Blues is Sawyer's latest novel. And it unfolds not just after our descendants have colonized the Red Planet, but after we have found ancient animal fossils there, long-gone Martian wildlife. Rob, your latest novel, Red Planet Blues, is set on Mars. Sometime in the not-too-distant future, there's life on the Red Planet, but it's human life. Tell me how they're living there. What, what's the lifestyle on Mars? Well, you know, the big question about Mars is the environment. And so I decided to opt for a dome covering a settlement. Uh, we can't do anything about the gravity on Mars. And in fact, in a lot of ways, the fact that it's 37% of Earth's gravity, 38% is a plus. Uh, you can do all kinds of things you couldn't do on Earth. We can't do much about the thickness of the atmosphere in any short term. So some kind of dome that protects from uh, solar radiation and also lets us put 
our kind of atmosphere in so people can have a shirt sleeve environment is what I opted for. Now, Rob, this is not a futuristic city filled with smiling colonists. This is a kind of a tough frontier town. I mean, these are prospectors or their descendants, right? That's exactly right. The backdrop of this novel is something I call the Great Martian Fossil Rush, that sometime in the middle of this century, uh, private sector explorers from Earth have gone to Mars and found fossils of ancient life. I also think by the middle of this coming century that we will be synthesizing just about anything of value here on Earth. So it's only things that have provenance, as they say in the auction houses, or pedigree that'll have real value. Real, honest-to-goodness fossils from the red planet become way more valuable than gold or diamonds, and a gold rush of prospectors ensues, they colonize Mars, and my novel, Red Planet Blues, is set against the backdrop of these mean streets of Mars in uh, kind of the bust period following the fossil hunting boom. All right, so so they found something valuable on Mars, but it's not a mineral, it's not none of the usual things, it's these fossils. How big are these fossils? We're not talking about fossilized microbes, right? Right, exactly. The big thing is uh, on Earth, you know, multicellular life took a very long time to emerge. Unicellular life emerged, depending who you ask, 3.8 billion, 4 billion, maybe even more uh, years ago than that. And it wasn't really until what we call the Cambrian explosion, 500 and something million years ago, that we got multicellularism and complex large-scale objects on Earth. I just postulated on Mars that that interregnum of, you know, billions of years, from 3.8 to half a billion years ago, didn't happen, that they went very quickly to multicellularism, so that we have ancient two, three billion year old fossils on Mars, but they're of things that would be corresponding to shellfish or, or crustaceans and so forth from that period of time. All right, so these are the bony remains of, well, pretty sophisticated life on Mars. I mean, the kind you might find in a natural history museum on Earth, but you're saying the biological history of Mars was accelerated, it was different. That's an interesting idea that that biology could evolve more quickly somewhere else. And in fact, that's been even seriously suggested. I think Percival Lowell suggested that that might happen on Mars. Is is there any scientific justification for thinking that, you know, life got, got moving a lot more quickly on another planet? Well, the big question is why it took so long to get moving here. We really had a stasis for billions of years, from about four billion to about a half billion years ago. That's three and a half billion years of time in the history of this planet where life wasn't doing much that was interesting at all. And we don't know why it stayed uniform and uninteresting for so long, and we don't know what jarred it to suddenly start getting complex and interesting. All the interesting evolution on Earth has happened in the last half billion years out of four billion. So the question is why we were stagnant, and I think maybe it was because we're closer to the sun, we were more at the vicissitudes of solar uh, flares and radiation. At the time, Mars would have had a thick atmosphere protecting it. We had a thick atmosphere protecting us to some degree, which simply means the farther out you are from the the sun, the less likely you are to constantly being knocked back into the biological dark ages by a coronal mass ejection or a solar flare or a prominence. You know, that's really an interesting idea. You're suggesting that Earth, which we consider the best planet there could be for life, might not be. 
It certainly wasn't historically, I don't think. Right now, it probably is the only place in the inner solar system that has active biology. I'm a big fan of thinking that we're going to find biology on Saturn's moon Titan, maybe on some of the Jovian, the Jupiter moons. But in terms of the inner solar system, it seems pretty clear that Mercury and Venus are scoured absolutely clean biologically. And whatever life there was on Mars, and I think there probably was life on Mars, uh, is probably dead at this point. So we're the best place to be today, but I don't think we were necessarily the best place to be for the bulk of the lifetime of the solar system. All right. Well, that's reassuring. I'll keep paying my mortgage. Rob, I can't help but noticing your, your novel's written in the style of a hard-boiled detective novel of the 1930s, you know, like Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade, or the works of Raymond Chandler, noir detective stories. Are you a fan of this kind of cynical gumshoe? You know, it's funny because I'm best known as an optimistic science fiction writer, but I do have a real fondness for that cynicism, that down these dark uh, streets, alleyways kind of uh, fiction writing. Uh, and, you know, we've moved from the altruistic, government-centered uh, exploration of space to private sector, profit-driven exploration of space. And if there was anything that noir fiction was about, it was about everybody out for themselves, everybody trying to make a buck and watch your back because it was very competitive. And I thought marrying that noir feel with this shift we've had to private sector, profit motive, space exploration really made an interesting juxtaposition and maybe even a relevant comment on what's possibly going wrong with our view of how we're going to go out into space. Well, finally, Rob, I, I can't help but note that somewhere, I think it was about a third of the way into the book, you talk about a particular species of Martian, albeit a fossilized Martian, called Shostakia. I, I assume that's just coincidence. Not at all, my friend. I have been so uh, <laughs> thrilled by the work that the SETI Institute has continued to do in the area of astrobiology. You know, for a while, NASA shied away from that. If you said anything about astrobiology, they were afraid their funding would get cut or people would label them a bunch of nutcases. And of course, it was the only thing that the public is interested in terms of Mars, is whether or not there's life there. The SETI Institute has spent so much time keeping that flame alive, the search for extraterrestrial life, that it just seemed absolutely appropriate to me to honor you, and I also honored Carl Sagan in the novel at one point, uh, for doing this, for keeping the dream that there might actually be other life, not just out amongst the stars, but here in our solar system alive during the decades in which NASA and the U.S. government, my Canadian government, other governments, lost all apparent interest in that issue. I have to say, being called a fossil is uh, actually not so novel for me. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Rob Sawyer, thank you so much for talking with me. Seth, always a pleasure. Thank you. Robert J. Sawyer puts his imagination to use as a Hugo Award-winning science fiction author. His latest, Red Planet Blues. So, Shastakia. Yeah, I, I'll make no bones about it. I was proud to be uh, mentioned there. A fossil has been named after you. Yeah, I hope I get a little 3 by 5 card in a museum somewhere. <laughs> Thanks to our lively production team, There Are No Fossils, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Rena Shaklesko. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. 
Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. And you listeners, your ears have been attuned to C'est La Vie. You can find more Big Picture Science at iTunes and through that link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and leave a comment there as well. If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because it tickles the microbes living on your skin, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the program. It tickles the microbes on your skin? Not very much. I had just gotten back to the office after talking to the prospector's widow. Couldn't figure out if she was lying or if there was a glitch in her code. Suddenly, Costellini walked in. Check this out, boss. I just found it outside the dome. Let me have a look at that. I ain't never found a fossil before. You think it's worth some dough? Could be. It's a Shostakia. Good specimen, too. Shostakia? Oh, wow. Named after Jack Shostak. No, the other Shostak. Oh. <clears throat> well, I guess it's still sort of interesting. Could make for a good conversation piece. Yeah, or a doorstop.